Good morning. I'm Kathy Iyer, and the reading this morning is from Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth to complain or defend himself. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before her shearers, so he did not open his mouth. After oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, his contemporaries, who among them concerned himself with the fact that he was cut off from the land of the living by his death for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke of death was due. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord God. We live in this safe place, and there's many believers around the world who do not. Lord, we just ask you to be with us in this time. May we hear your word spoken in truth and glorifying you and guiding and directing our hearts to that which you would say to us today. We give you all honor and glory. We just ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. So I've spent the last month working on Acts chapter 8. And just when I think I have it, the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, that's good, John, but that's not it. That's not the message I have for you. And it wasn't until the latter part of this week and an actually um, Friday morning when I felt that the Lord really had helped me to put together what he wanted us to look at here today in Acts 8. And Acts 8 is broken into what I initially described three sections, but there's an underlying theme that runs throughout it. And hopefully, I'll be able to to bring that um, to clarity for us all here this morning. So we see one side, one side sees a, uh, a religious terrorist, the other side a hero to their faith. What would our attitude towards a persecutor be? Hate and fear or compassion and forgiveness? How does our attitude affect the gospel message to the world around us? We all know the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. It goes like this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Powerful words given to us by Jesus himself. But it goes on. And in following that in Matthew 6, 14, and 15, Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, their reckless and willful sins, your Father, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, nurturing your hurt and anger with the result that it interferes with your relationship with God, then your Father will not forgive your sins. I'll be using the Amplified this morning, which adds a little bit more into the 
into the text. Um, Contrasting the words of Jesus is the testimony of a man who put Christians to death. These are his words. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. The person making this confession was Saul in Acts 26, 9 through 11. We see him introduced to us in Acts 7, the stoning of Stephen, where he is found to be innocently or somewhat innocently holding the coats of those stoning Stephen. But as some commentaries and as in his own words I just read, it was more likely he led the assault on Stephen. So as we look in, we get a clearer picture of who Saul is, where his, he's coming from in his, his origin, in his religious fervor, his zeal and, and, and that. And Glenn will speak more about Saul next week. Um, Here's a quote from a persecuted Egyptian Christian <clears throat> after escaping a death sentence by his government. It is my opinion that you don't torture or persecute somebody unless you're afraid of the truth that they carry. That was pretty profound by a man living it, living it out. The Holy Spirit uses opposition to spread the gospel. And starting in Acts 8, 1 through 3, And on that day, a great and relentless persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And the believers were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and mourned greatly over him. But Saul began ravaging the church and assaulting believers, entering house after house and dragging off men and women putting them in prison. So Saul, by edict of the Jewish leaders, led the persecution of Christians. He was intent on not just suppressing Christianity, but eradicating it entirely. Do you think the believers there in Jerusalem that are being chased out were immediately thinking of compassion and forgiveness towards Paul for his acts of terrorism? I mean, the, the challenge is so great. And as we saw in that video, it's just so great to maintain that attitude. It reminds me of um, our son and daughter-in-law who have been on mission in, in Thessaloniki, Greece, at the Syrian refugee camps. And as they're talking with the people that, that they met and, inter and were able to interact with, Muslims, mostly Muslims, but some Christians... These were middle-class people, ordinary people in the Syrian culture and society, just like we are here today, that had to literally drop everything and run for their lives, many of their family members being killed before them. Many, they, they just lost. They couldn't find them. They didn't know what happened to them. Chasing, being chased 
by the persecutors running for their lives. A heart towards forgiveness, more powerful than opposition of the gospel. And I'm, let me just take a breath here. This is the first time I've ever stood up and given a message, and I'm, I've, I had to write it all out, so if it looks like I'm just reading a manuscript to you, it's just so I can stay on track with what I feel the Lord has given me to share this morning. Thank you. Glory to God. So in verses 4 through 8, Now those believers who had been scattered went from place to place, preaching the word, the good news of salvation through Christ. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds gathered and were paying close attention to everything Philip said as they heard and saw the signs which he was doing. For unclean spirits, demons, shouting loudly, were coming out of many who were possessed, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great rejoicing in that city. Picture this scene. Things were getting messy, but exciting. There's a whole lot going on here in just this short section of passage. Philip is coming into a place that is not his home, preaching the gospel. He's just been chased out of with other believers just chased out of Jerusalem, fearing for their death, or at least potentially suffering death at the hands of the persecutors. Arriving on scene, speaking boldly into the lives and people there in Samaria. And, and things were happening. Demons are being cast out. People are being healed. Reflecting back a few weeks ago to Acts 4.29, And now, O Lord, hear their threats, and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Great boldness in preaching your word. Not relief from the persecution and the opposition. Not safety, not security. Boldness to continue to press on and go forward. Philip, or Philippus, was one of the Greek leaders or deacons selected along with Stephen to care for the Hellenist widows. We read about in Acts last week. Philip was a man surrendered to serve others like Stephen. In fact, he was, when, they, when it names, uh, names of all of the men selected, it's Stephen and then Philip. So the passage states, the crowds gathered but wasn't Philip just a deacon helping widows in Jerusalem? Now he's in Samaria preaching the gospel to crowds. How does that happen? How does, you know, and in between there is what the driving force that brought him out. And I would, I would say was the, the, the driving force physically in the physical realm was the, the opposition, the, the persecution, the pursuit of them for death. But wasn't the Holy Spirit involved in this as well? Wasn't God leading and directing them out to bring the gospel out into the world? We see that persecution, when met with compassion and forgiveness, provides for an evangelistic explosion in Samaria. The Holy Spirit was at work in and through Philip because Philip surrendered himself, allowed himself to be used. He wasn't hung up on all the things that he had seen. Remember what we read in Acts 4.13, being said of Peter and John. They were just ordinary, 
uneducated and untrained men doing powerfully amazing acts because they had been with Jesus. Here's Luke showing us Philip as one, of, one who has surrendered himself like Peter and John and Stephen to serve, however, wherever and whenever the Holy Spirit directs, being used in powerful and amazing ways in Samaria. Philip had witnessed a lot happen in Jerusalem, hadn't he? The Holy Spirit come on Pentecost, preaching and teaching of the apostles, discipling Ananias and Sapphira, and Stephen's death. The opposition developed into violent per persecution of believers, yet here he is stepping up in Samaria. But we could have effectively, but could he have effectively proclaimed God's grace to those in Samaria without first forgiving as he had been forgiven the persecutors and those who drove him and others out of Jerusalem. So persecution does not change the power of the gospel, does it? The video provides a great example of the unchanging authority of the gospel message preached through the power of forgiveness. The priest who was kidnapped, tortured, and threatened with death, he returns to serving the Lord where he was called and does so with an incredible measure of forgiveness for those who tried to stop him. Anger, bitterness, and unforgiveness hinders us from the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. But the power of the Holy Spirit is increased in and through those who live free of those things in surrender, living for Jesus. What about Simon? Belief without transformation, verses 9 through 11. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God himself. Power of, excuse me, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Unlike today's magicians, the magicians in the Bible either gained their power from demonic forces or else they were little more than charlatans who pretended to have great knowledge or to discover secrets, tell fortunes, and predict things to come. This is who Simon is. It shows us also that Simon though thought highly of himself and told people so. So much so that others repeated that statement of greatness. His magic was used to confirm his statement of self-greatness. Simon was a lost soul living in the depravity of his thinking and actions, like so many of us before the gospel of Jesus impacted our lives. So how would the gospel message impact Simon? Why did Luke put this part of Philip in Samaria, and Simon in the scriptures for us to read. What was he looking at here? Even Simon, this is verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon was continuing on with Philip, and Philip had preached the gospel which Simon believed. Simon even was baptized. 
He was a believer. And he continued to walk and follow and listen to Philip preach. And in that, he was starting to gain some understanding of what it meant to enter into this relationship with Jesus. But was Simon understanding about forgiveness and surrender and being transformed to the likeness of Christ? Verses 18 through 24. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority and power too, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Was Simon still caught up in his old self and way of thinking, leaning on his own understanding and not allowing the transforming power of the gospel to change him? wanting to just add salvation in Jesus into his old way of life, looking at it solely and strictly as this point of salvation and that there was no other change or transformation that was going to impact his life as a result. He would go on being Simon the magician, and now he would have this new authority given to him to lay hands on the people, increasing his own greatness. First Corinthians 6:20 You were bought with a price. You were actually purchased with the precious blood of Jesus and made his own. So then honor and glorify God with your body. And I would add our heart, our mind, our thoughts, attitudes and actions, the entirety of our lives surrendered in exchange. Is God asking too much of us for this? Isn't this something we all still do? A life not fully surrendered to Jesus means we are still functioning with some old habits, thinking and acting, just like we see Simon doing. Verses 20 and 21, But Peter said, May your money be destroyed along with you, because you thought you could buy the free gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart, Motive and purpose is not right before God. What was Simon guilty of? 22 and 23. So repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, this thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are provoked by bitterness and bound by sin. Peter is speaking rather direct and strong into Simon. And he's calling him to repentance. And he's calling him to pray himself, to seek the Lord himself, so that his, he may be forgiven. And he, he gets right down to the core of what is Simon's motive here. And it's unforgiveness. Provoked by bitterness and bound by sin, he's not free. He hasn't fully surrendered his life and himself to salvation in Jesus Christ. But didn't we just read that Simon was saved and baptized? How is it that he can still be bound by sin? We are being given the example here of the forgiveness of sins through the salvation in Jesus and still being bound by them in our thinking and acting so what was Simon guilty of here? 
it may be Peter's confrontation of Simon. That it may seem Peter's confrontation of Simon was blunt, if not harsh, towards a new believer. Let me just, I got something that uh, I found about, it kind of gets into a little bit about Peter's character. His weaknesses, headstrong, speaking before thinking. Peter often spoke before he thought. He sometimes told Jesus what to do. Often he spoke in haste and said foolish things. He was, very out, he was a very outspoken person and was prone to get excited. He was weak in the flesh, though strong with the spirit. Peter had a strong spirit and was committed to Christ, yet at times his weak flesh took over and caused him to do something he later regretted. He fell asleep at the garden when Jesus asked him to pray, and he denied Jesus three times. Inconsistency. As Peter was growing in the Lord, he was inconsistent. He would have a great success in faith or action, and that would be followed by a failure. He started walking on the water to Jesus and then looked around him and sank in the water. In his strengths, you know, although Peter had some clear weaknesses, he, uh, he also had many strengths. Excited. Peter was excited about his relationship with Christ. He was excited to be able to learn from Jesus and witness what he had, did, what he had done firsthand. He was committed. Peter may have fallen at times, but he was committed to Christ. He gave up his career and his home to follow and serve Christ. He became a full-time Christian worker. Many believers today want to separate their spiritual life from their real or daily life. They just want a touch of Jesus. Peter wanted all of his life to be affected by Jesus. Peter put God first. Peter did put Jesus first in his life most of the time. He did so at the risk of his own life. He was repentant. When Peter sinned by denying Christ, he later repented of it and reaffirmed his faith in Christ three times. Peter seems to have learned from his mistakes because over time he became more and more mature and more and more courageous in his walk with the Lord and ministry for him. And I think that's where we find, that last part is where we find Peter here today. Peter, too, was being transformed and discipled by the Holy Spirit in the midst of his ministering and being an apostle with given the, the duty to work to the establishment of the church, he didn't come at it with total perfection. He didn't come at it in a completed, perfect man sense. I just, I wanted to read that part, those things to you to help bring the humanity of who Peter is as he's dealing with Simon. And so there's, there's some of Peter and there's the Holy Spirit that's really reaching into Simon with that statement. We have to believe that the shock of his statement, statement is what Simon needed to be drawn out of, needed in order to be drawn out of his old way of thinking. We need to remember that we are all in process of being transformed and this is done by the measure of our surrendering to God. Same with all the believers around us. We're all in process. We're all just from one step to the next. As God reveals in our hearts, in our minds to us, 
those things that we're holding back, those areas we're holding back from him. And that he doesn't want us to get into a tug of war with him. He won't pull them from us. He wants us to surrender them to him. So Peter, through the guiding of the Holy Spirit, was speaking into Simon's context of life, how Simon saw and did things prior to being impacted by the gospel message, getting the gospel from the head to the heart of Simon. And this was successful as witnessed in Simon's response in verse 24. But Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, both of you, so that nothing of what you have said will come upon me. Repentance and surrender of the old thinking and transformation begins. The circumstances, experiences, and reasoning of our past lives prior to coming to Jesus is flawed like Simon's was. And it is revealed in our attitudes and our actions with others. Just how wrongly we think about who God is too, isn't it? Unforgiveness is at the core of wrong thinking, which is why Jesus gave us a clear picture of it in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, their reckless and willful sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, nurturing your hurt and anger, with the result that it interferes with your relationship with God, then your Father will not forgive you your trespasses. What it reminds me of is a statement I heard of unforgiveness is like taking poison, thinking it's going to affect the other person, when all it is really doing is just destroying your own life. In Simon's case, adding the gospel into his old way of thinking would provide him with greater stature among the people. Selfish gain. God, through Holy Spirit, wanted to transform Simon from selfish thinking to selfless thinking. But also, in regards to Simon adding the authority of the Holy Spirit into his old life, God does not share his glory with anyone. The gap between the Creator God and everything else is massive. And anyone who tries to raise himself across that gap, whether an angel of heaven or a king of the earth, or in this case, Simon, is guilty of blasphemy and liable to severe and eternal punishment. <sighs> Preaching to the eunuch, Philip involved in a drive-by conversion. Verse 26, but an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go south to the road that runs from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And so he got up and went. What does a life being lived in surrender look like? Remember, Philip is an ordinary, untrained, uneducated man like many of us. Yet, unlike so many of us, Philip is hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit directing him to go do something. And he does it. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Then the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. 
Philip ran up and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? Does the Holy Spirit speak to us today the same as he did to Philip and the other disciples and believers of the early church? What made them so able to hear the Holy Spirit's voice? Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 was what the eunuch was studying and did not understand who it was speaking about. Our scripture reading passage earlier that Kathy um, read to us is that section. The eunuch replied to Philip, Please tell me, about whom does the prophet say this? Then Philip spoke, beginning with this scripture, and he preached Jesus to him. And the eunuch exclaimed, Look, water, what forbids me from being baptized? He got it. Philip said to him, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord took Philip and carried him away to a different place. That's being available. I've wondered why the Holy Spirit required Philip to walk to the road, and then when he was done, spiritually (laughs) pulled him out to another place. Wouldn't it be awesome if he had just picked him up and dropped him in front of the the eunuch's chariot, had him do his thing, and then took him out? And wouldn't that be great if he did that for us? Because then we would know exactly and for certain what the Holy Spirit's wanting us to do. But we wouldn't have to listen. And what he's wanting us to do is listen, to open our hearts to him and to be obedient. And what I love about this passage, too, is Philip doesn't even break a sweat. You know, he is there and then gone, and it's like 42 miles to where the Holy Spirit dropped him, and he just keeps on preaching. It's like, that's fine. Didn't know how I got here, but it's okay. I'm with the Lord. So the eunuch was already being educated through the scriptures. In the passage, um, it talks about he went to Jerusalem to worship, but he's riding in his chariot back. Obviously, someone else is driving because he's reading scripture. This is an Ethiopian eunuch reading scripture after being in Jerusalem. So he's being educated. We can assume that God was active in his life, and this passage in Isaiah, which Philip was called to help him understand, was to unlock the rest of Scripture in a way which would allow him to serve in the preaching of the gospel to others. He had it. Philip was just needed kind of to help close that understanding. Isaiah 55:11 reads, "So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when did the eunuch believe? Was it before Philip's drive-by evangelism or after he explained the passage he was studying? 
I think John 6, 44 and 45 give us a little bit of an understanding of that. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Philip was simply following what the Holy Spirit was directing him to do. God was already working in the heart and mind of the eunuch. And so much of the time, that's how our lives fit in with the world around us. We don't know all the circumstances of everybody we interact with. But if we're called by the Holy Spirit to say something, and, and a lot of times we, we can get confused that we have to present the entire gospel and end up on our knees with people in order to feel like we're being used by the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that that's something that doesn't happen or that we shouldn't look forward to. But a lot of times it's just being in relationship with people and letting them see Christ at work in us through the testimony of our lives, the witness of who we are, our good days and our bad days, our struggles and our successes. So what have we learned in this chapter 8? The tortured priest's attitude of forgiveness allows God's grace to be witnessed by others, testifying with our lives. That same attitude is what made an ordinary guy like Philip effective in the preaching of the gospel. Simon was confronted by Peter to let go of his old way of living and thinking and begin living in the transforming power of the gospel in Jesus alone. For the eunuch, Philip acted in obedience to the Holy Spirit. We don't know how long we have to disciple those around us, taking advantage of every opportunity to reach the world around us is living in a surrendered life. And at Bill's uh, services, Junior got up and talked about the impact that Bill had in him for Christ. If Bill had waited till next month to do that, it would have been too late. That's a pretty clear example we're in this physical body. We have a limited time here on earth. How much of our limited day, our limited life, are we going to surrender and give to the Lord for his purposes? Our, our worship songs this morning speak to that truth as well, and it's very humbling to think about how much of my day do I want to give to the Lord and how much do I want to keep for myself God is calling each of us to surrender our thinking our attitudes and lives to him those old ways which hinder and obstruct our ability to hear the Holy Spirit speaking into our lives this is a vital part of living in relationship with God it requires living with an attitude of forgiveness towards others I love being able to sit in the class or in Bible studies 
and talk about these things and have the discussion. And it's a little different being up here presenting everything and hoping that the Holy Spirit is speaking through me to you all and not hearing the, you know, the hands raising or a comment being made um, and just entering into that conversational way of looking at God's word together. So I hope that what the Lord has shown me and, and I've been able to share with you this morning has been able to give you a, a clearer understanding of how important forgiveness is in our lives and not holding up bitterness and resentment and judgment against others. And it's part of that surrender that God wants us to do in, in that we've been bought at such a price. Who are we not to give our all to him who paid that price for us? Let's pray. Gracious Father, full of love and mercy, forgiveness, we just lay our lives before you. And we do desire to surrender all that we are to you and to your glory for that which you have paid for us. We just thank you and praise you, God. May your word press into our hearts and cause us desire to desire to be changed and transformed to the likeness of our Lord and Savior and to be a light to the world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have God stories. Oh, thanks, Gwen. You got it? All right. Lois would like to um, start. You guys getting tired of me. Too bad. All right, everybody. Here I am again. Oh, okay. I have another God story. I would like for Dwight Keegan to come up here, please. And Kathy Iyer, I want to tell you some good things about this man. This is an elder we can be so proud of. He came out in that snowstorm yesterday, came to my house at 8.30, loaded things in his truck, and he and Jeff hauled all that stuff to the bitter end. Dwight did not complain, wouldn't let me feed him or nothing. <laughs> but this is what... God does with these wonderful elders we've got, you people. And then here's my Kathy R. She's been with me every minute before Bill died, through his dying. She was there yesterday helping Tammy unpack all my many things that I didn't know where to put, but they did a very good job of getting them straightened out. So I just wanted you all to look at these two people and know what a great bunch of church family we have here. Amen. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I know you guys love me. So now Lois is at Heritage Heights, room 207. I, 201? Well, why was I going to 207 the whole time? Anyway, please stop by and visit her. Yes. The last few weeks have been kind of interesting. 
God's been working on my heart. Because we say we trust him. We say he's in control. And he's got the big picture. And uh, this last year with Aurora has been tough, but I've learned a lot. But uh, I had, I've had headaches off and on for the last m several months. And they did a CAT scan. And the CAT scan showed that there was potential problem. And so God and I had some real hard conversations. But God, you know, what about Aurora? But God, what about this? But God, what about that? And uh, I finally had to come to that place. But if I believe that God is in control, then he's got the big picture. So whatever he wants is what is best for the big picture. And so I came to that place and I got that peace in my heart. And you know, so often, oh, they did an MRI and everything came out clear. So praise God for that. That's a big praise. Um, but so often, you know, we look at the big things that happen. And this morning as I'm coming into town, there was a song that came on and it started with the words that there are no guarantees. And I went, wait a minute, that's not true. Because I flipped the station and then there was a song that says, I'll fly away. And it's like, we do have guarantees. We do have guarantees that it doesn't matter. As long as we love God and we serve God, we're going to be with him. You know, and, and then, then the next song, and it was like, Jesus saves. And the next song was something else, and it's like, we do. We do have guarantees with Jesus. So, you know, it's, it's trust in the big things, and it's in even the little things. If we just give him everything. Why is the car in front of me slow? I need to get where I'm going. Wait, it's everything. If we let God be in control.